don't know what you tell us. I'll tell you. We're just friends. Just friends? I'm a great listener. Wow! Welcome to Keep It 2000, a social experiment into the effects of Vince Russo on the mind. I am Brian Mann, being joined by Nate Milton. And Nate, we've done it. We've survived one episode. And it sounds like, uh, I would say we had a positive reaction the first episode, but uh, at least week one didn't completely defame us yet. Yes, you know, they, they said it couldn't be done, brother man, but we survived week one of uh, Monday Nitro from the year 2000. Uh this is going to be an interesting experiment, like you alluded to, much like Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the 90s, where the whole premise of that show was, uh, you know, they sent uh, the guy up into space and they showed him bad movies to see the effects on the human psyche and the human body. And, and uh, you know, eventually they had to switch people halfway through that show. So uh, who knows? Maybe uh, the, the team that starts this journey, we, we, we might not be the team that finishes the journey. Wait, wait, who, who do you think's going to crack first? Because all the robots stayed. <laughs> all the robots stayed. That's that's a good question, though, because uh, normally I am the uh, most optimistic of the two of us. I'm True. the more optimistic person. but uh, It was the, the likable Joel who got to escape. Yes. And and then Mike had to stick around for the for the bad stuff. But uh, it was the cold, cynical robots that were had to stick. stick this does not look good for me. No, it, it doesn't. And but here's the thing. Here's <laughs> the thing. I, I will make this pledge to the listeners that uh, I have committed to at least stay through November of 2000 because I cannot pass up the opportunity, brother man, to talk about the inevitable and the irreplaceable invasion angle that took place between WCW. And the Battle Dome Warriors. So you're gonna peace out after November. You're gonna stick me doing four episodes with like Marty DeRosa or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you never know, man. You never know. Marty, I hope you're ready. See you got four nitros on your docket coming up. See what Mark Madden's doing these days. <laughs> Somebody was asking me about that today. They were like, "Would you rather review these uh, bad nitros from 2000 or Three Hour Raw from today?" And I said, "Hmm, it's that's a good question, but I think I might lean towards." These Nitro 2000s because it's it's kind of like, would you rather see your favorite band play terrible songs or would you rather see a band that you don't care about play, you know, halfway decent songs? And it's like, I, there's, there's something to the nostalgia of going back and looking at these characters, even if they're put in these terrible situations by the creative teams. At least, you know, it, it, it's cool to go back and say, hey, man, I, I remember when DDP was hot. Uh, well, as we uh, discussed uh, last week, we were slightly positive on last week and kind of, uh, as I've been able to reflect on that first episode a little bit more and compare it to what we're going to get into today, I think it was the fact that last week, because of the tournament structure, we, we were sort of forced into having a 
uh, overall story arc. And just due to that, there was a lot of bullshit that, you know, they really tried to cram a lot in, uh, but there just wasn't time for it. And there certainly was time for it on this episode. But before we get into that, we want to set the stage like we always do and talk about what was going on in the world on January 10th of 2000. Now, Nate, when we spoke during the last episode, Santana Smooth was the number one song in the country. Now, it had actually been number one for 12 weeks, and it's it's, it's 12 Weeks of Terror were stopped on January 10th by Christina Aguilera's What a Girl Wants. Wow. What a girl wants, what a girl needs, whatever makes me happy sets you free. And I'm thanking you for knowing exactly what a girl wants. I feel like the phrase What a Girl Wants is stuck around largely because of the film of the same title. But for me, Genie in a Bottle is always what I'm going to think of when I think of Christina Aguilera. Uh, which one is your go-to Aguilera banger? Uh, it, it's got to be Dirty Man with Red Man. Oh, okay. Uh, that, that was actually a uh, Christina Aguilera joint that I was proud to uh, bump in, in the car without uh, fear of uh, you know judgment from passersby. But yeah, Dirty would have to be my go-to uh, Xtina joint. She's still around because of the voice, but is she still, like, legitimately a thing? Like, do people who are under a certain age, let's say people that are under 25, do they organically know who Christina Aguilera is? Is she still doing enough today to justify that celebrity? Is she, or is she someone, when I compare her to the other judges on The Voice, she certainly seems like the one who's more so the, the hanger-on from, from yesteryear. She's still famous, but I, in terms of music, I don't know if she's relevant anymore. To me, she seems almost like... A uh, new millennium version of what Paul Abdul was to American Idol. Exactly. You know, somebody that had fame, somebody that made some good songs, had some hits, but now is known more for this reality show. And, and while they do have credentials within the music business, that's no longer what they're what they're known for chiefly uh, to the people, to the public. So does that mean that Redman was her scat cat? Wow, I, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. I, I, <laughs> actually, I, that might have been my favorite Paula Abdul song too. Actually, no, there was another one because, uh, yeah, Paula had this phase, I guess, when her uh, fame was starting to die down, and she wanted to put out a little bit more risque music, and uh, she had this one song, and I think it was like from the Paula Abdul Live in Japan VHS cassette that my sister bought, and I watched numerous times, uh, and the song was called uh, Vibology, and I really liked that song, because Paula Abdul was basically talking about uh, using the metaphor and the euphemism of music uh, to express uh, having sexual relations, and I was like, you know what, Paula Abdul, I, I can go along with you on this musical journey. Well, as large as that was in the, uh, the world of music, Christina Aguilera slaying Santana's reign, in the world of news, in the world of media, Nate, do you know what major news story happened on January 10th, 2000? Hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to just throw this out there going off of our last podcast. Did we have a presidential inauguration? We did not. The inauguration would not be for the next year. The election would be happening on 2000. Uh, no, the big thing that happened was earlier that day announced, but surprisingly not touched on, uh, on tonight's broadcast of WCW Nitro, a merger between AOL and Time Warner was announced. America Online, AOL, the internet services company, is merging with Time Warner, $160 billion, the biggest corporate takeover ever. With the merger, the company's joint holdings now include AOL, Time, CNN, 
CompuServe, Warner Brothers, Netscape, Sports Illustrated, People, HBO, TBS, TNT, Cartoon Network, Warner Music Group, Fortune Entertainment, Weekly, Looney Tunes, and this container of hand soap. No, that, that, was, that was one of the darkest days of my life. The, the moment that effectively... Uh, Crushed so many childhood memories. Uh, yeah, they didn't really mention it, and I was uh, I kind of had an ear out for it. I thought they might reference it in some way, but no, it was uh, surprisingly never mentioned by anyone on the commentary team. Although, I mean, they had to make up plenty of time for Tennessee uh, Titan Buffalo Bill uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, match recaps, I guess. That probably was my favorite part of watching this show, just seeing all the uh, NFL references and, and wondering how you as a... Uh, the sports aficionado that you are were, were digesting all of this. Well, I could feel like there was, uh, like, I was watching this and there was a Nate-o-meter that whenever we hit zero, Nate was going to turn this show off. And just when we were about to hit zero, they'd make a football reference and Nate was back in for another 15 minutes. <laughs> and thankfully, Jeff Jarrett was out every 10 minutes to make a football yes, reference. Yes. So let's head in for our next case trial of WCW Monday Nitro. This is the new commissioner, Terry Fox. On the most recent must-skip episode of Thunder, newly minted WCW commissioner Terry Funk continued his feud with the NWO 2000, Nate's favorite pro wrestling faction of all time. If you'll remember, the previous Nitro ended with the NWO committing felony kidnapping by abducting Arn Anderson, Funk's second-in-command. The NWO has since upped their criminal record by torturing Anderson with lead pipes and hot coffee. If we strike ourselves up a deal. The torture continues. Now, this would all culminate in a public hostage negotiation where Kevin Nash would challenge Terry Funk to a match it sold out. How about me and you it's sold out, Funk? You beat me. We dismantled the NWO. If I beat you and I will, I become commissioner of WCW. So less than 24 hours into Funk's authoritative tenure, he's already being written off. Funk agrees to the match as long as he gets to face world champ Bret Hart on less than 30 minutes build. Funk and Hart then had an ill-advised hardcore match that uh, somehow led to David Flair locking Arn Anderson in a closet and Terry Funk being powerbombed through the stage by Kevin Nash. Uh, Now, Nate, I gotta tell you, I'm beginning to think that Vince Russo doesn't know how to tell a story. Man, I was so tired after... 30 seconds of this recap because, you know, and we were talking before we recorded tonight and, and I sent you the message that the recap in and of itself, it was like two months worth of angles and storylines crammed into a week. And it's like, man, like I'm, I'm not saying that any of this would be great if you stretched it out, but <laughs> like, let's at least try to, String the audience along and build up moments and tension in this story instead of, you know, having everything that you worked for on Monday night just get kicked in the hyperdrive or overdrive on Thunder. A show that even even back then, man, even in 2000, as diehard a WCW fan as I was, I knew Thunder wasn't hitting on nothing. I, I, I had better things to do than watch Thunder every week. So, yeah, even even then, man. It, it, it was not a uh, destination appointment television type of show for me. It's also just this recap was a real testament to Vince Russo's inability to sort of earn moments. The NWO has not been around long enough 
to tease them being disbanded. Terry Funk has not been in charge long enough to tease losing his commissionership. Like, we haven't even established the conflict between these two. Uh, as of And Terry last Funk w- shouldn't be taking powerbomb spots uh, ever at that age. With that memory in our mind, we're on Nitro Live from Buffalo. You're looking live outside the Marine Midland Arena where the limousine of WCW has arrived. Our show begins with a comically large WCW limo arriving outside the arena, and out comes the comically old stable of Terry Funk, Larry Zabisco, Arn Anderson, and Paul Orndorff. So that's how our show starts, guys. Uh, I mean, at least we're building up fresh talent to take on our top heels. Inside the arena, we are live from Buffalo, New York, where Tony Schiavone welcomes us to tonight's show, which also happens to be the go-home show for Sold Out. So let's see how well they hammer that event home. Our first match of the night is a three-way dance for the tag titles with Perry Saturn and Dean Malenko uh, being accompanied by Asia and Shane Douglas against Conan and Billy Kidman facing the WCW World Tag Team Champions David Flair and Crowbar, who, of course, won their titles a week ago. Now, first out are Perry Saturn and Dean Malenko. Next out are Kidman and Conan, accompanied by a young fan. Um, now, Nate, I don't know. Uh, did WCW have like a partnership or with some charitable organization that allowed like the Boys and Girls Club or someone to send out a child with him at the time? Do you know if that was the case? I mean, that, that would be like the ultimate make a wish. Like, I I want to go out in the opening match on WCW Nitro. I'm actually sorry. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, this wasn't a, a young boy. Uh, this was an unmasked Rey Mysterio Jr. Uh, certainly living up to the junior aspect of his name. Nate, how could you ever take this dude's mask off? He looks 11. Yeah, yeah, and and like I, I honestly, I mean, obviously, uh, I love Rey Mysterio, and uh, I think that he is just phenomenal. But this was such a bad idea to unmask this dude because. You took away, uh, no pun intended, some of the mystery. And I think I, I could kind of see where they were going with the whole Latin hip-hop thing. Because uh, that, that theme song was pretty pretty great. I, I think it was Psycho by The Mad One. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I still love that song. Uh, but you could have had the same aesthetic and still let Ray keep his mask, I think. Or oh, yeah, yeah. just not have Ray in the group at all. Because like, he was doing great by himself. Now, uh, so at this point, we have Conan, Kidman, and Ray coming out, and they just start brawling with the revolution before the champs even come out. David Flair's music hits and outruns David Flair with Crowbar, Daphne, and his Nitro Grill t-shirt. Despite some pretty good workers in this match, Nate, this was a total and complete mess, as it is tornado rules and falls count everywhere. So it's just all six men sort of stumbling around the ring, sort of like a Royal Rumble. Uh, Shane Douglas joins commentary to promote a six-man tag this weekend. Man, are we ready for sold out this Sunday. Look at this. I mean, look at who's dominating in here. We're not fighting two men. We're fighting four men. And we're going to walk out tonight with the World Tag Team Championship. Beautiful overhead belly-to-belly suplex. David and Crowbar use their weapons to take out Kidman and Conan. So, with two of their opponents completely neutralized, do Saturn and Malenko turn their attention to the tag champions? No. Even though this is a title match, Malenko and Saturn decide to leave the ring and brawl with Rey Mysterio in the aisle. Crowbar gets some offense in the ring, and we then cut to a crowd shot where Perry Saturn is just so sh- wandering around in the audience for some reason. Looking up into the, into the seats here, obviously. I don't know what's going on here. Shane Douglas then leaves commentary and assists Dean in putting Rey Mysterio on a table near the stage. Saturn then emerges on a balcony above the men. Look at the top of the screen, fans. Harry Saturn, what? What's he doing up there? He's in the balcony, guys. 
we get a nice shot of Perry posing in front of a sea of empty seats before diving 15 feet to splash Rey Mysterio through the table. No. Oh, no. You've got to be kidding. That's it. Dean and Shane asked Saturn why he would do such a thing, despite encouraging him to do so less than 30 seconds previously. Medics roll out with a stretcher as Saturn sells extreme pain in his ribs. Any heat that was created by this spot instantly evaporates as David Flair just runs in out of nowhere and covers the injured Saturn to retain the tag titles. Tony says it's the most incredible thing that he's ever seen. However, not incredible enough to ask for a replay. <laughs> Nate, it's one of these things where you sort of look at it on paper, and I will say, for maybe half of what we see on The Night Show, on paper, just seeing the title of the segment, it makes sense. What happened here? Okay, we're going to have a three-way match for the tag titles. Two of these teams hate each other, and they're going to be having a match together this weekend, and because of that dysfunction, they end up costing both teams a shot at the belt, and our champions are able to just kind of skirt away. The execution of this, though... Uh, do you think it's just that they didn't want to even attempt to lay out a match and have people on the apron that you had like, what was it, um, two and a half minutes of this Royal Rumble type makeshifty thing and then we're just going to transition over to this ECW type spot? This was a, a, a total and complete fucking mess. But as crazy as it is, this was maybe the most enjoyable thing on the entire show. I mean, I think the big problem, again, you know, we're going to mention this name many times throughout this episode of uh, Keep It 2000 and also probably throughout the whole series. But you could tell the lack of regard Vince Russo has for the actual wrestling on a pro wrestling show. Uh, because it, it is just basically used as a as a backdrop or a catalyst for the backstage skits or whatever storyline he's trying to promote. Uh, instead of the other way around, using your storylines to build up to a match. Uh, so I think this match was frustrating for a couple reasons. A, uh, it was just a, a big cluster, uh, and outside of the finishing spot, there wasn't anything memorable about it. Uh, but the other thing for me personally watching this, this was when the, uh, network started to act up on me on my TV. And so, you know, I'm (laughs) the only thing worse than watching this match is watching this match where, it freezes and have to, has to buffer every 30 seconds. Ew. And so... <laughs> I mean, I'll say that. If it had to pause and buffer every 30 seconds, it might have actually been as long as it should have been <laughs> in the initial execution of this. So I had to end up going from the TV to the, uh, to the uh, desktop computer, which, for whatever reason, had zero problems. And I could watch this match in all of its glory uninterrupted. And so... Uh, that's how I watched the rest of the show, but yeah, this was not a memorable match, and uh, it's it's going to be a theme for this night. You know, matches that are just kind of setups for bad punchlines. We then go to the broadcast booth where Tony, Bobby, and Mikey are here to give us the rundown of the show. However, Tony informs us that Terry Funk will be booking tonight's show on the fly and that we just have to sit back for a very unpredictable night of Nitro. So I guess Terry Funk now has total control over the powers that be, right? Is that how it works? Have they been sent home? Because last week I thought it was that Funk was an, enfor- was an enforcer, but now he's also a booker. They didn't mention the powers that be at all tonight. They were pretty much done. So is that storyline finished? Oh, man, that, that's, that's part of the mystery. You know, we, we're, just right. as, we're just as confused as uh, Tony Schiavone. We, we don't know. This whole damn show is on the fly. 
Maybe maybe now that Funk is booking, he forgot to book the end of the storyline that he was replacing. <laughs> uh, so Tanae tells us that we do know one thing for sure, and that's that later we will have an interview with Stevie Ray. Really got to question Terry Funk's judgment if that's the one thing he had planned for tonight. I guess if all that fails, we got two hours of Stevie Ray talking in the middle of the ring. Hey, you, you got to have Stevie Ray because uh, wrestling should be as informative as it is entertaining. And if there's one thing uh, Stevie Ray is going to do is provide knowledge to the suckers because suckers got to know, brother man. Tanae then says that we will also have a face-to-face confrontation between DDP and Buff Bagwell before their match on Sunday. Vince Russo can't even consistently be inconsistent. He just said, we don't know what's coming up. Here's two things that are coming up. (laughs) So in the back, the NWO are shown getting out of their limo, wishing Scott Steiner a happy birthday. Is it God hard as the NWO decides, you know, the guy that has everything, what do you get for his birthday? It should be noted that Scott Steiner's birthday is in July. Nash says that he's got a special gift for the birthday boy, and six women exit a nearby car. Steiner manages to kiss each and every one of them on the lips, even the ones that clearly didn't want to. Elsewhere, Terry Funk and his Funkadactyls watch in disgust before getting up and heading to the ring. Backstage, unaccompanied minor Rey Mysterio is loaded into an ambulance. And Rey right now is almost fighting the efforts to put him in to the rescue squad here as the filthy animals are in there with Rey. Meanwhile, Scott Steiner takes three of the women, including the future Major Guns Tylene Buck, to his dressing room, but promises the other three that they will be next. Nate, I just don't see how people can say that Vince Russo is a misogynist. <laughs> uh, there, there were two things that uh, I realized while watching these opening NWO 2000 skits, uh, Brother Man. What's that? Uh, the first thing is... Uh, I'm done. I'm, I'm, out, I'm out with the NWO 2000. Man, I tell you what, you made a valiant case for half of an episode. <laughs> I, I, my memory, you know, it, it, it uh, betrayed me. It played tricks on me. Uh, but yeah, this Listen, group sometimes I, you have a fond memory for a WCW magazine cover and the rest is, is history. Yeah, I mean, that was a hell of a magazine cover, though. It was <laughs> like uh, the back was like this deep shade of purple and and the guys had their shirts on you could tell they just got them fresh from the uh, printers and it, it was jeff jarrett had like the silver guitar uh it was a great cover uh <laughs> but yeah this this group was terrible uh but the other thing that uh i realized from watching these skits is uh man april hunter probably should have been a bigger star she can she can she's a decent worker and she has the attributes that a lot of these promoters uh at least at that time in, in that day and age seem to uh prioritize with their female talent. So you, you, you figure she would have had a bigger, uh, bigger run during that, during that era. The University of Oklahoma fight song fills the arena, and out comes Oklahoma, bringing me to truly regret our decision to do this show, Nate. It, honestly, as soon as Oklahoma came out, I suddenly started to understand all of the tweets that we got after announcing the show and how people were questioning how we could do this. Nate, if you wouldn't, Mind just uh, for uh, real quick, how would you summarize w- who and what Oklahoma was? <sighs> Oklahoma is uh, Ed Ferrara doing his best slash worst impression of Jim Ross, uh, complete with barbecue sauce, cowboy hat, and uh, yeah, it's a chauvinist gimmick and it's uh, tasteless in every way. It was just terrible logic dominated by, you know, the backstage politics of this time period where it's very clear you're not watching a TV show. You're just watching some sort of, like, weird 
business squabble that's being uh, conducted publicly. I got to tell you honestly, Nate, this segment came on. I had to pause it and come back and finish the rest of the episode uh, a day later because <laughs> it is so difficult to get through this character because it just there's there's it's just nasty. Like there's real there's no positive thing there. And I remember back when I was young uh, younger, I didn't connect probably because i also wasn't watching that much wwf at the time i didn't connect that this was supposed to be jim ross i thought this was either some sort of like older character that was returning because you gotta remember i was a little bit younger i'd only been watching for a couple years and you'd have things like hey here's the varsity club and everyone knows who the varsity club is and when oklahoma debuted like a month or so earlier he debuted and the announcer were like oh we know who that is and doing that thing and so if you weren't in on it you know, how how are you supposed to know when they were just referencing something that either happened in another com- company that we actually all do know about or they're referencing something on the internet? It was just very confusing. For you, did you kind of know instantly what was going on here? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it, it was uh, crystal clear. And it's it, it pissed me off for a couple reasons because, A, I think the chauvinist character could work if done properly. But to add this layer of pettiness, to have this dude mocking Jr. even you know downs to the Bell's palsy, it 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 was just something that, as a fan at the time, I you know even though I was a WCW fan more so than I ever was a fan of WWF, Jim Ross is not just WWF. You know Jim Ross was WCW. Yeah. Jim Ross was NWA. You know he's was and still is one of the most respected voices in wrestling, and and for them to do that, I felt. It was unnecessary because, you know, if if you got beef with Vince and if you want to make fun of him and, and, and the, you know, some of the other guys in the WWF, that's one thing. But to take the shot to Jim Ross, I, I thought it was unnecessary. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was an angle that I was not a fan of even back then. Yeah, so since then, Ed Ferrara and Jim Ross have talked about this publicly and they've sort of, you know, there's no hard feelings there anymore and Ed has apologized for it. Uh, but that was not the case at the time in January 2000, which is when this show that we're reviewing took place. Now, Oklahoma says he's tired of, quote, All these hoochies around here that don't realize that their place is in the kitchen. The worst thing about this character is that it wasn't even getting heat. Because aside from just a few scattered boos, I think the audience just kind of rolled their eyes at it. They found a couple women in the crowd, and one or two of them were kind of like passively booing. Most of them were just sort of like laughing and rolling their eyes. Now I'm out here tonight because I want to send a message to old Medusa. I want to give her a little taste of exactly what's going to happen at WCW Sold Out when I take that WCW cruiserweight title right from around her cellulite-riddled waist. Not only was the head writer of the show, Ed Ferrara, performing in an on-screen role, he was also wrestling, as well as facing a woman at the next pay-per-view, and that match was for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Nate, how long do you think before they do this angle on 205 Live? <laughs> oh man, uh, who who would be uh who would be in in the Oklahoma role? Well, I think you'd have uh Dave Kapoor out there and he would be facing Dana Brooke for the <laughs> for the Cruiserweight title. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this And and again, I think there was a way Brian and and it, and it speaks to 
not fully thinking things out just besides the point that you want to, you know, get, get a vindictive shot at somebody and throw some shade at somebody. But there was a way to kind of do this in a creative way and have this mid card chauvinist pig, this, this Archie bunker, if you will, and maybe have it be entertaining, but this certainly was not the way. It's also involving the cruiserweight championship. And Medusa had won the title a month earlier from Evan Courageous, where they were doing this whole, like, MILF storyline between her and Evan. So, you know, we're really presenting the women as equal footing here with the, with the men. Because it's not like they have any qualified and talented male cruiserweight competitors on the roster at this time. So, Oklahoma challenges any woman in the back to come face him in a good old-fashioned slobber knocker. The challenge is then answered by the Revolution's Asia, who actually gets a pretty decent pop, despite the fact that she is a heel— so she does a pointless backflip from the top rope into the ring. She then jaw jacks with Oklahoma before pushing him down. Asia turns her back in celebration, which allows Oklahoma to attack her from behind, leading to a brawl on the floor. Medusa's music hits, and the cruiserweight champ makes her way down as Oklahoma breaks a bottle of barbecue sauce on Asia's head. Tony Schiavone then points out that Oklahoma is in a quarter because he's already used his bottle of barbecue sauce. No worry, though, as babyface Medusa takes so goddamn long crawling into the ring under the bottom rope that Oklahoma easily neutralizes her with kicks before breaking a broom over her head. And he breaks the broomstick over her back! Now she'll have no way to get home. Everyone, every single person associated with this, looked absolutely terrible. The performers, the announcers, the entire cruiserweight division. Honestly, the bottle of barbecue sauce was maybe the only thing that was booked well in this segment. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Yeah, this was uh this was not a good look, man. And uh one of the things that is evidently clear on this show and, and you touched on it earlier is the portrayal of women. And when you've got Medusa in this company, when you've got Asia, when you've got, you know, Midnight, who we'll see later, when you've got uh, Molly Holly, uh, Mona uh, in, in the company, it's it's not like they couldn't find a better way to showcase these women's talents besides these inane storylines. You mentioned they had a lot of people, but they're all doing the same thing. I mean, you look over on the other show and you had China and there was no one else like China. But here we had Asia, obviously, and Medusa and Midnight, and they're just sort of being treated like another character. And they're just being treated like another mid-card male character that no one cares about. So when you're not writing them particularly well, and you're also diluting this gimmick of having them be women that can you know, sort of throw down just as well as the men, they're really being left with absolutely nothing at all. And that's what we got in this segment. Yep. No, we got a lot, but we were left wanting none of it. Backstage, Terry Funk and the Sands of Time walk towards the ring. Elsewhere, Kevin Nash and Jeff Jarrett and Bret Hart poke their head into Stott Steiner's locker room, asking that he wrap up his workplace orgy to come to the ring. In a padded cell, arguably the biggest star of the show, Randy Savage, was seen in a Slim Jim commercial. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Beef. Spice. In the arena, the Fuckadactyls make their way out to some noticeable booze, oddly, while a recap of his Thunder beatdown is played. Funk says the dead man is still walking and that Nash will have to do better than that to keep him down. Funk says that he picks Zabisco, Arn, and Orndorff out of the unemployment line and calls the group The Old Age Outlaws. This is like some indie-level carny shit at this point. 
Arn promises to sink to the NWO's level and get some payback on the group. Zabisco correctly points out that the new century doesn't start until next year and that the NWO won't make it to the 21st century. Sadly, Vince McMahon felt otherwise. Orndorff then points out a group of power plant students that are sitting in the front row that he's currently training. So I guess Mr. Orndorff actually isn't in the unemployment line after all, as he is still currently a trainer at the power plant. If you think these old dogs don't have another bite in them, you're all for wrong. Because tonight, we're going to take a chunk out of your ass. Big time. The NWO music hits, and out comes Jarrett, Hart, Nash, and a freshly fucked Scott Steiner, accompanied by his sixth birthday presents. Nash says that he should be out buying new suits for when he becomes the new commissioner. Funk responds by putting Jarrett into three matches tonight as a preview for his triple threat theater this weekend, and that each match will be against one of his close friends. Jarrett says he'll kick their asses like the Tennessee Titans kicked the Buffalo Bills' asses this weekend. That's some blue light special heat for Double J. Funk refuses to say who Jarrett's opponents will be, but the Jarrett's sold-out opponent Chris Benoit will referee all of his matches tonight. Funk then goes one further and books Bret Hart to defend his world title against fellow NWO member Kevin Nash. If you take it easy on each other, I will see that you are suspended for a year in WCW without pay. Nash and Hart come back by just saying they've saved their money and they can actually just take the time off. <laughs> Funk obviously wasn't prepared for this ad lib, nor was anyone in the NWO. Everyone just sort of stood there with a dead look on their face. So Steiner steps up to the plate and saves the day by cutting a promo that is so filthy it is just bleeped out from the beginning to end. Listen here, Kenny Funk, you old son of a Funk then lets us know that Steiner is not yet cleared to wrestle, despite having had three matches on last week's Nitro. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to do something to you tonight that your mama should have done to you a long time ago. I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. Hit the music! You know, this was pretty much a standard, uh, like you have in Raw, you know, the authority figure comes out and sets up all the matches for the night. Yeah, this this was that. I don't really know uh, what more you can say. It was very, uh, very basic. This was very much, it felt like the beginning of an indie show where a lot of old guys come out and uh, get angry at the, the, the new dudes who are going to be uh, working the show. Yeah, I think aside from the main event, this might have been the longest continuous segment on the show this week. Uh, I don't know. The DDP... Uh, Buff Bagwell match did have a 10-minute clock on screen. So that at least went 10 minutes. I think this one maybe went 7. Oh, it felt like 17. Because <laughs> uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Like, uh, Let's start with the Old Age Outlaws. Oh, did that name? <laughs> well, it, it speaks to a big problem, and we're going to see it multiple times here, is that Vince Russo so loves referencing the past so much. But I, the thing that he didn't quite understand is that he didn't work for WWF anymore. And when he came over to WCW, aside from, like, the varsity squad last week, he never – he hardly ever references WCW history because I don't think he knows it. So he's making these references for and, – and, and obviously we'll never know this, but I wonder if Vince Russo had come in and had that same sort of nostalgic yesteryear nudge-nudge-wink-wink thing, but he actually did it for WCW audiences if they would have actually appreciated it. Who knows? Right. And and we'll see uh, later on with the uh, surprises that Funk brings out. This very much felt like a, a 
WWE uh, tribute band. Yeah, because aside from Arn, those were all WWF guys, more or less. I mean, Zabisco had been doing commentary, uh, but Orndorff, you know, and, and, and Funk's been all over. I mean, obviously, if this had been Flair, like we talked about last week, and he had been able to bring back, like, Tully and, and some stuff, like, maybe that would work. Um, but yeah, as it was, you're just like, these four dudes who I do not associate as having any chemistry together, uh, and this crowd clearly didn't react because if you are these, if you're a WCW fan, these, these aren't, you know, these aren't the guys you grew up with. Man, for me, it, it's, it's funny because there was a couple things that I actually liked in this, but it was surrounded by a lot of trash. Uh, like I, I, I dug Zabisco's promo. I yeah. thought Larry Larry cut a good promo. Arn did a did a serviceable job. Uh, even Orndorff Orndorf was better than I thought, you know. And and I thought, uh, you know, the referencing the power plant guys was a nice touch that was never really followed up on. And this is where listeners from our previous uh, work on review and impact will remember uh, when the show started to get too much. I would drift into alternate reality booking. Yes, and this is where. Just looking at, at the, those guys at, the, at ringside, you know, where we got uh, Chuck Palumbo and Prince Ikea and uh, Elix Skipper and a couple other guys. And, you know, not huge names, but certainly, you know, solid talents. And I was like, man, what if instead of having all these old dudes fight the NWO 2000, the old dudes recruited the, the power plant guys? Yeah, and that, that could have been a really good way to debut these guys. So you said, hey, you know what? Uh Instead of having our kooky thing where two of the NWO guys are going to face each other and Jeff Jarrett's going to have three separate matches, you instead were like, hey, you're going to face three of these guys. Like, I think, I think that, that could have been really cool. And, and really, you know, just having ring time with a guy like Bret Hart or, or Kevin Nash, even though Nash isn't the greatest worker, he's still one of the bigger stars in the company. You know, putting Elon Skipper or Chuck Palumbo or uh, even Prince I.K. in there with those dudes would have elevated them. Uh, and I think... I mean, obviously it wouldn't have happened because of the egos involved, but uh, like, I think that would have been a really cool way to introduce them. And then if you wanted to do you know, your patented Russo swerve, have the, have the young guys get rid of the NWO, eliminate the NWO, and then have them turn on, on the old age outlaws. Or even, even, I mean, this would maybe meet half the way, but if the power plant guys turned on the old age outlaws and joined the NWO, because the NWO is going to have some... Uh, some turnover rate here pretty soon. <laughs> and we'll get, we don't want to spoiler up spoiler upcoming episodes, but uh, we're gonna have stuff to talk about in a week. But yeah, uh, the, and the other thing was uh, that the you talk about you know the ad libs, and I, I love Terry Funk. You know, Terry Funk is is one of the all time greats. And you know, growing up watching a lot of wrestling from that area. You know, my mom's from Texas, so she was a big fan of the Funk. So that was. Those were some of the first wrestlers I, I, I was exposed to on TV. Uh, but giving him that much time to just go out there and cut these promos, it, it was not a good look. You know, it, it just felt like there was too much information for him to deliver. And then when you get to the point where, you know, the the NWO guys are throwing the ad-libs out there, Funk seems to get a little bit rattled. And I think at one point he's like, uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you who, who you're going to fight. Okay, let me tell you who you're going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, like, damn! I, like, I don't, I don't think they set Terry Funk up in the best position, you know, as, as the commissioner. Oh no, it was shades of uh, Hulk Hogan's TNA commissionership in terms of <laughs> laying out a show. 
We then go backstage where the senior squad is in Funk's dressing room. Terry tells Arn to meet a mystery man who has just arrived at the building. Elsewhere, Buff Bagwell and DDP are shown walking separately to the ring in anticipation for their face-off. Outside, Arn looks in a limo and apologizes to the person inside, thinking they were someone else. Back from break, Kimberly Page is shown walking backstage, and Tony casually tells us that it was Kimberly who was in the limo. So we then get a recap of the DDP-Buff Bagwell feud. Apparently, Buff uh, may have been trying to slide into the DMs of Kimberly while Page was filming Ready to Rumble in Hollywood. Down in Dallas, Page was not married to Kimberly. I'm telling you, Buff would put his stuff all over her. I don't think so. Buff stuff ain't big enough. So in the ring, Mean Gene brings out both men for their face-to-face interview. Gene is about to uh, wrap up, but we hear the control room say, we need a little more time, so Gene just drags things out a little bit longer. And with that, hopefully tonight, we will get the truth, because I'm going to bring both men out. After debating whether Kimberly fucked Buff, the announcers inform us that if these men touch each other before uh, five minutes passes, they will be fined $50,000. DDP tells Gene to leave the ring as the five-minute timer pops up in the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. Paige and Buff take turns calling each other monkey. Buff asks how Kim is doing, but pledges innocence because they're just friends. Buff shows he's friendly by saying that Paige has a small dick. Paige says, nah-uh, and that Buff has a small dick. So then Paige accuses Buff of getting Kim drunk after a show in Little Rock while Paige was off in Hollywood. Buff again claims his innocence. It should be stated that this wasn't a mega powers imploding type situation. The act in question was never seen by audiences. All of this was like this weird kind of shoot off camera thing that happened months ago. So Buff volunteers to take a lie detector test because Paige is overreacting. DDP says the boys in the back tell him that Buff keeps talking about how sexy Kim's birthmark is. The birthmark that only DDP can see. So that's what all this is about. A birthmark. Well, hell, that's easy. I've definitely seen that. But so is all the boys in the back, dude. So then DDP sucker punches Buff as the five-minute time limit has expired. But Buff then comes back with a police baton that he apparently had on him this whole time. Tony quickly mentions the two men will have a last man standing match before they rush to another segment. Last man standing, no rules, no rubs. That's going to be wild on Sunday night. What a pay-per-view. Again, it's the execution of this. If you just said we're going to have a face-to-face interview between these two guys who have a personal issue and they're not allowed to touch. But Vince Russo doesn't know how to have – Vince Russo still has to have the beatdown. Did anything happen here? Was it that one of these guys got so crucially uh, injured that it will play into effect in their match later uh, later this weekend? Or was it just a beatdown for the sake of a beatdown because every single segment on the show is just about how big people's dicks are and it has to boil over into some sort of aggression? Uh, I, th- I think I might have to put my uh, Optimus hat back on for this one, Brian. Oh, okay. I think this segment, it wasn't great. Like, like you know, I'm not going to... You know, put my credibility on the line and, and lie to the people out there uh, and tell them, you know, this was a great, fantastic segment. Uh, but I think in less capable hands, this would have been god awful. I think DDP and Buff elevated the, the material far more than it had any right to be elevated. Because <laughs> they were like, when it started, I wasn't into it. And when it finished, I wasn't into it. But there was a point in the middle. 
uh, probably around the uh, two minute mark, uh, which was nice of them to have that handy clock on on the bottom of half of the screen. Uh, but it was around the two minute mark where, uh, you know, he's like, "Look me in the face! Look me in the face, Buff!" And then Buff comes back, you know. Would you do this? And he sets up this hypothetical situation and Paige is like, no, I would never do that. And Buff's like, well, neither would I. And you can trust me. And I was actually invested for a split second in this, uh, in this rivalry. But then, uh, they took me out of it at the end. But I'd say for, for what it was, it, it could have been a lot worse had it not been for the, uh, the talent of Paige and, and surprisingly one, uh, Buff Bagwell. Uh, yeah, surprisingly, this maybe, uh, this level of tension maybe should have been given to the next face-to-face interview segment we'll see, or to, uh, the bond between two brothers is supposed to dissolve between, before our eyes, but this is a situation where it's like, hey, uh, some of our coworkers said you tried to fuck my wife, I didn't try to fuck your wife, like, that's the full basis here, and if these two maybe had had a friendship previously if maybe we actually saw that's the other thing is like there's just so much telling there's no seeing and then on top of you have why would there be a five minute time limit that these guys can't touch each other if they're ultimately allowed to touch each other eventually right what's the point of having this at all i I understand and i really like it actually i'm a big fan of when you say that guys can't touch each other ahead of time because like these guys hate each other so much they touch before the match they put the match in jeopardy they might hurt each other uh they're just not allowed to touch each other but to say you know for television purposes we need you to talk for five minutes so what you're saying is if this segment were between buff bagwell and scotty riggs it would have been better for you oh no no i i we we would be having a much more different conversation right now i was not only your friend but i was an american male with you uh so we then go backstage and we're in the nwo locker room where nash volunteers to lay down for brett but Brett does, uh, doesn't want to be stripped of the title. So Hart says the two of them can just have a match because they both know that Hart will win. Nash gets offended and says that he'll be a four-time world champ before the night is over. Outside, Arn waits for Jarrett's first mystery opponent, uh, who arrives in a town car. We're back, and Arn Anderson, as you saw before the break, was waiting on someone to arrive. And we can only assume that is going to be the first opponent here for Jeff Jarrett. The winner of the WrestleMania 20 dark match, Chris Benoit, makes his way down in a referee shirt. Jarrett then comes down the aisle with a cart full of weapons as this first match will be a bunkhouse brawl. The old age outlaws then bring out the mystery opponent, star of Ed Wood. George, the animal steal! Fuck, Nate, is this Nitro or Heroes of Wrestling? (laughs) Steel gets somewhat of a decent pop there in Buffalo, New York. And he pushes down his own card of weapons. Clearly, these two can't have anything resembling an actual match, so they just stall and chase each other around the ring. Steel gets in the uh, the ring and hits some very weak weapon shots. Jarrett, wanting nothing to do with this, starts to head up the aisle, but the old age outlaws stare him down. In the ring, Steel takes off his shirt and gets his trademark eating of the turnbuckle spot in. Jarrett sneaks in and hits the animal with a guitar shot. And and wouldn't you know, out of nowhere, Arn Anderson does some sneaking of his own, and he plants Jeff with a spine buster. buster. Benoit then puts Steele on top of Jarrett, counts the three, and gives Steele the win. (laughs) 
this had to have been the greatest talent disparity between a wrestler and a referee of all time, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would have to say so, man. What? There's a there's a lot here, Brian. Like, first of all, Jeff Jarrett shouldn't have lost this match. Uh, Jeff Jarrett shouldn't have lost any of his matches tonight. Well, I was going to say, if he was going to lose one match, there was, the last match probably should have been the only one he lost due to the finish of that match. And not only that, but you have Benoit, who's supposed to be the babyface here, and we've, wa- we've been watching the show two weeks in a row. I don't see what their, what their feud is. We've not seen any footage. There's no reason for Benoit to try to, be, to, to, try to get back at Jarrett. To be fair, maybe there was something two weeks ago that we just never saw, but they have not reminded us or shown us any reason why these two have any issue at all. But no, I, I was not a fan of this, and it's no shade on uh, George the Animal Steel, but... But it should be. It, uh, it, it was... It was I, I get the choice, being that you know, you're know you in Buffalo, which might as well be you know, WWE cut, uh, you know, a WWE stronghold, but it goes to the point you're making earlier about Vince Russo's ignorance to what WCW fans want. And I'm not saying this would have been any better had it been an NWA legend and not George the Animal Steel, but I don't see how it could have been any worse. We then go backstage where Scott Steiner emerges from his dressing room wearing nothing but a towel and sunglasses. Which one of you freaks like champagne? How much, just doing the math, how much money do you think the NWO spent on Backpage entertaining uh, Steiner all night? (laughs) Oh, man. Like, just, you know, one of the constant uh, criticisms or one of the most frequent criticisms of WCW is that they were not not good with their money. And on this show, up and down the the card, you just see expenses that uh, didn't need to be, whether it's the old WWF guys or the women for the NWO uh, or the limo that was only used to bring Kimberly Page to the arena where she didn't do a damn yeah. thing. Like, so much cost that uh, could have been well, see, We saw limos three times tonight. No, four. Because we saw the NWO arrive in a limo, Funk arrived in a limo, Page arrived in a limo, and uh, Snook arrived in a limo. I don't know for sure, but I really hope they used the same limo. <laughs> I don't put it past them that they rented four limos. Russo's like, bro, I got a deal. I bought the limos in bulk. Like, it's reality, bro. People will look at the license plates. Um, yeah, I... I, I uh, and I will give them credit for the fact that Scott Steiner, they gave him a reason why he wasn't coming out and getting involved in the matches. Right. But, but what? Who do, who do you think came up with that? Scott Steiner? It had to have been. And six? It was comical when those women were coming out of the car. Was, uh, was Medeja in that group? Medeja was in the group. Medeja was, was, was in there. She was like the third one to come out, I think. Uh, you couldn't have done a thing where maybe earlier in the night Arn like, finds him and takes him out? That certainly would have been uh, less misogynistic and, and would probably have spared us that uh, promo where uh, Steiner was bleeped out. But who, also, who am I supposed to be? Again, who am I cheering for here? Hey, that big cool guy that says all the bad words that fucks all night or these fucking sweatpants wearing, like, <laughs> these old men and their fucking new balances coming out here. Would it have been better if they were all wearing suits like Zabisco? Because that's a thought I had. Well, Zabisco was the only, the other dudes were like straight off of like standing in line at a Walmart on Black Friday. And fucking Zabisco was like, he looked like a guy that showed up for an office Christmas party too dressed. If that makes sense. 
Like maybe not all suits, but at, at least maybe some polos. They all could have worn polos. Polos, a blazer, even. And I tell you, Funk had to get his merch over. He there. sure did. Do you think? Do you think WCW was selling that, or do you think that was his own? That was a custom. I think that was. I think that was a custom Terry Funk to, shirt he, that, that he was wearing. He had to go that. to his pro wrestling tees store. <laughs> the early days. <laughs> <laughs> he was selling them out of the back of the limo after the show. Hit him up on Google Wallet. He'll, uh, he'll, he'll ship a t-shirt. Nash's, uh, we then go to Nash's locker room where Nash is prepping for his title match tonight when Jarrett enters to suggest that they just kick Brett out of the NWO. Nash says, sure, let's do that as soon as I win the belt. Jeff then does a total 360 and says, no, nah, we shouldn't let Funk get what he wants. <laughs> Screw him. Throw him out. We'll throw him out. I know Steiner's with me. Let me take the belt from him, and we'll throw him out when it's over with. It'll be, it'll be that easy, but just forget it. Forget, Don't let uh, the commissioner get what he wants. He's trying to drive a wedge. We then go to Terry Funk's locker room, where Terry and the Funky Bunch congratulate Steele, telling him he's never looked better. A lie. We then go to the ring, where a Thunder recap is shown of Stevie Ray turning on Booker T. Mean Gene is then in the center of the ring to conduct an interview with the backstabbing Stevie Ray. Stevie comes out and commits the ultimate act of delusion, lambasting all the announcers and saying that he could do a better job. Stevie calls the Buffalo crowd a bunch of fruit booties. Stevie then talks about coming to WCW seven years ago and that he and Booker were fighting together. Stevie says that Booker went out on his own but could only win the TV title because that's all WCW wanted him to have. Stevie says that Booker turned his back on the hood and that he wants a match against Booker T at Sold Out. At Sold Out, I just want one thing. At Sold Out. You know, my brother has a pay-per-view named after Ah, here we go. Okay. This brings out Booker and Midnight. Booker says he won't fight Stevie after all they've been through and that their mother is turning over in her grave right now. I ain't wrestling you tonight. I'm not wrestling you at Soul Out. I ain't never wrestling you. All right, man? We out of here. Stevie then slaps Booker once, and Booker agrees and says, yeah, let's have a match, but promises it won't be fixed. You gotta fight at Soul Out. But I'm gonna tell you like this right here. This won't be fixed. Now, can you dig that? A real about face from Booker T here uh, to agreeing to this match. The delusion and the breakup of this classic WCW tag team. These two brothers turning on each other uh, due to jealousy and ambition. Not only does it not get a proper build, the match is announced after 30 seconds. And Booker T does some shoot bullshit by saying it won't be fixed. Yeah, I I, I liked and, and hated this, this uh, segment at the same time. I don't know what it is about Stevie Ray, but I think he's got... A promo style that is not, you know, nobody's going to confuse him with Ric Flair or The Rock or somebody like that. But it's very much an old school, like, Texas slash Deep South type of heel promo. Uh, it, it, it was kind of reminiscent of uh, Iceman King Parsons or or uh, somebody like that from uh, World Class. And I, I liked what Stevie Ray had to say because it made sense from his vantage point. You know, and like, uh, you know, Booker, you forgot about the hood and walking around wearing them Bruno Magalis. And, and we know what happened to the last man that wore Bruno Magalis. It, it, it worked. Uh, and, and I thought uh, for his part, Booker was all right. But the inclusion of the, uh, you know, the this isn't going to be fixed line and also Midnight, who, this, you know, I remember this feud vividly because... I want to say it's at Sold Out that they play uh, a clip of Stevie Ray going to the hood. 
there's enough there for a really good feud, especially when you you know you talk about the history of this WCW tag team, and and you know you can make it where both sides, you know, where you got. Stevie Ray looking at Booker like he's a sellout and Booker looking back at Stevie Ray like, you know, why would I want to limit myself? Like, there's there's an actual really good feud in there if you want to take the time to cultivate it. But instead, we'll just slap this uh, crackerjack fruit booty, as Stevie Ray would call Midnight, uh, onto this feud and make her be the impetus of all of this stuff. And, and it, so it just, it just falls flat of, it, it falls a lot flatter than what it could be. Back in Bret Hart's locker room, Jarrett is now saying, uh, to Bret Hart to not give in to Funk's mind games. Just because he didn't have a belt, he may be a little jealous. You know, he just, just, he just have to No, he didn't, Brett. You you're letting Funk you get what he wants. One of the biggest things I hate about not just this WCW Nitro, but wrestling in general, where we have scenes earlier in the show or later in the show that establish that people can watch the wrestling on TV. Yes. But then they have segments where they act like, Nobody can hear me. Like it, 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 it's a little thing, but it's something that, that has always irritated me. Well, the other big thing that Vince Russo loves doing, uh, and we've we've definitely seen it here, is that every character, when they are not actively in the ring, are sitting watching the show backstage. And it's weird because they'll be watching, but then it's also like, well, as soon as we cut to you, aren't you then just watching yourself on the television? <laughs> So outside, a freezing Arn Anderson greets another Jarrett mystery opponent. Back from break, Benoit's already in the ring. Funk and the Old Age Outlaws make their way down. Funk talks about the next legend, a former WWF Intercontinental and Tag Champion, Tito Santana, in his El Matador attire. So, Nate, this is two weeks in a row we've talked about Santana. Jarrett makes his way out. Jarrett taunts some Buffalo Bill football players in the front row and even pushes Paul Orndorff before entering the ring. Now, this match is a dungeon match, which means you can win by pinfall submission or by sending your opponent to the floor. Uh, Santana hits a hip toss, a drop kick, a flying forearm. He actually has a, a little bit more, uh, he will, by a little bit, he has some athleticism. He's able to have somewhat of a match that uh, George Steele was not able to. However, Santana at one point tries to jump over the top rope and onto the apron. It takes him three tries, and he ends up just having to climb. It's, it's very sad uh, to see. So Benoit and Jarrett then get into it, and Benoit hits Jarrett. At this point, Ted Washington of the Buffalo Bills has jumped the, 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 uh, the barricade and is now standing on the apron. Washington shoves Jeff Jarrett, and Paul Orndorff jumps in the ring, and hits a pile driver onto Jarrett. Benoit then puts Santana onto Jarrett for the pin. There's that famous pile driver from Orndorff! Kind of back-to-back, the exact same match, the exact same segment. We're not achieving anything new here other than Vince Russo getting his jollies by another one of his childhood heroes coming out that means absolutely nothing to the WCW audience. (laughs) Yeah, man. Uh, You know, you mentioned this is our second Santana mention uh in two weeks and uh i hate to say it because i love the ariba man as much as the next fan but uh this was not nearly as smooth as uh carlos's 2000 you think brian man that this would be a segment that would have me captivated because we had the inclusion of nate i would i would never think that i did think that when the football player got on the apron i was like oh i can't wait for nate to explain to me who this person is i mean ted washington was 
He's somebody you would know in NFL circles. Like yeah. he was uh, inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in, I want to say, 2013, 2012, 2013. Played for a bunch of years on a couple different teams. You know, he's a, he's a good, uh, good player, but he was never a star. You know, he wasn't Lawrence Taylor, somebody, you know, that even non-football fans would, would have an inkling of who this is. Uh, you know, you had to be a football fan to really know Ted Washington. And so, this was this this might have been one of my least favorite football player interactions of all time. Like I think as much crap as TNA gets, the TNA where they had the Karen Angle wedding with Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. And uh Bart Scott was the enforcer. Mm-hmm. Like I thought Bart Scott was much better utilized than Ted Washington in, the, in in this particular episode of Nitro. Because there's a way to set the stage that they never do. Like, it's because for Vince Russo, it's always jumping to the payoff. He has no idea how to do the setup. So usually with a thing like this, you would, earlier in the show, like get a close-up of, hey, look, we got a few of the the Buffalo Bills here in the audience, including, uh, you know, star Ted Washington. And everyone in the crowd oh, sort oh, of, like, applauds. that real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear how Tony introduced the Bills earlier in the night? Uh, oh, yeah, he just said, there's a few of them here. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. He's, he's like, there's a few Buffalo Bills here. Uh, we'll get some of their names, and we'll talk about them later. Yeah. Like, Tony didn't even have the names on hand. And they did not talk about it later. <laughs> so after break, we are... In the ring, where Tank Abbott walks out, as the announcers inform us that WCW Thunder is moving to its new time at Wednesday uh, of Wednesdays at 9.05. Speaking of Thunder, we see a clip from this past week's episode when Tank laid his hands on WCW Director of Security Doug Dillinger, an action that led to a $15,000 fine. Abbott calls out the fat old duck body known as Doug Dillinger. So why don't you wallow your fat ass out here and try to take a poke at me? Dillinger makes his way out and gets in the ring alone. Dillinger attempts to talk some sense into Tank, but Tank keeps trash-talking him, and eventually Doug does indeed go for a shot. However, Abbott is all over him with a tackle. Security and police run in and handcuff Tank. Jerry Flynn, who will be facing Tank Abbott at the pay-per-view this Sunday, then runs down and lightly touches Abbott in the back of the head with his foot. I think it was meant to be a kick. Uh, Tank drops to uh, his knees and smiles. A positive from this segment, I've always really loved Doug Dillinger. I love the fact that he had his own trading card in the WCW card game. I just love these sort of like company employees who exist. We know who they are, and they can occasionally be used for angles. And WWE doesn't do this. They don't give their referees names. If you are not one of the characters, quote unquote, you don't exist in this universe. And I liked that in WWE, CW is a little more messy and chaotic at times, but you would have things like last last week with that Rick Farber guy or whatever. Like there were just people that that brought an air of believability to the product, and because you had these non professionals in here, it sort of bled over and made other things feel a little bit more real. So that's the positive that I'll say here. uh, Overshadowing again. This just happened so quickly. This was less than three minutes. This segment was way too fast. And what's so frustrating is you have this thing, the Stevie Ray thing, that opening tag match that are all rushed, yet you have Jeff Jarrett essentially doing the same angle three times in a row. Man, outside of <laughs> outside of security and Tank Abbott calling Jerry Flynn Huckleberry Finn, there was nothing positive. 
in this segment. I'm not, I'm not even talking positive by wrestling standards. I'm talking positive. Like, there was nothing that contributed to the betterment of society that was gained from this segment, man, because Tank Abbott is another guy who I think, had he been positioned differently, could have been somebody that was this credible ass kicker. But he's a joke. At least, you know, as he's presented on, on Nitro. Uh, Jerry Flynn, who I guess, question mark, is the babyface in this situation, Brian? He's the babyface, yet he's kicking his opponent while he's handcuffed. Right. And like, being I'm, held I'm, down by police. I don't police. like that guy. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not cheering for you. So, like, there was nothing in this in this segment that uh, made me look forward to this feud. It makes so much sense for... Tank Abbott just be pummeling on this defenseless security guard, and then Jerry Flynn runs out and makes the save. You don't need the cops. You don't need the handcuffs. You could even do the thing where Flynn runs down with handcuffs, and then he's the one that does it, but by waiting for a group of guys to do his dirty work, then landing one poorly timed roundhouse kick. Yeah, Jerry Flynn essentially did the wrestling equivalent of the club punch. You know, you just run up on somebody, (laughs) hit him in the back of the head, and then run. Like... I'm not cheering for the dude that goes around club punching people. And so I guess this is, this falls into Vince Russo's whole, you know, shades of gray theology, but it, it just didn't work in this segment. So outside the arena, Arn greets the final mystery opponent, a clearly intoxicated Jimmy Snuka. What does it say, Nate, that Vince Russo was not willing to tell you who the other two opponents ahead, were ahead of time, but he thought Jimmy Snuka was a big enough star that people will not change the channel once they see Jimmy Snuka. We then go to locker rooms, and in their respective locker rooms, Brett and Nash prep for their matches. Elsewhere, we see that Chris Benoit has been laid out. What, what do we got here? Who is that? Benoit's down. That is the crippler Chris Benoit. He is supposed to referee the match coming up next. We then go uh, back to the arena where the cage has been lowered for Jeff Jarrett's final squash match. Jarrett makes his way out and goes to that Buffalo Bills, well, one more time and cuts another promo on them despite the fact that we've already had the payoff of a Buffalo Bills player getting involved in a match. Jarrett says that he already took out the ref so that you should just send down Snuka without Benoit present. Snuka then makes his entrance for what was his first ever Nitro appearance. Jarrett sneak attacks Snuka and sends him into the cage. Benoit then comes down the aisle, apparently not paying off the beatdown we just saw. I have zero clue why that needed to happen. He might be a heel here, uh, uh, Nate, but you got to feel a little bad for Jeff Jarrett for being locked in a cage with two alleged murderers. Mm. Zabisco and Orndorff then enter the cage and pound on Jarrett as well. So it is now four on one against the heel, as we are reminded that uh, Steiner's having an orgy and the two other NWO members are preparing to fight each other. Snooker gets up on his feet, climbs to the top of the cage, and then Benoit climbs to the other side of the cage. Oh! He's blasting from the top of the cage! Now it's Benoit's turn! Superfly then covers Jeff, and Benoit counts the pin. What was the point of this segment? Again, it was the same thing we already saw, at least with the other two matches. It was these bumbling old men 
need help to win, which then also just makes Terry Funk look like a fucking idiot for these being the dudes that he called in. But here, like, we're giving Snooperfly, like, this huge moment. I get, like, if this were a house show, if this were a reunion show, but what the fuck was the point of this? Superfly, as far as I know, never showed back up on a Nitro ever again. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I, I had several thoughts during this particular episode. Uh, whenever uh, Chris Benoit showed up on the screen, it's like, mm, this is, we're going to have to deal with this for a while. Well, here's the good thing, uh, Nate. This is the only episode of Nitro that Chris Benoit is on. <laughs> This is literally the only time we have to see Chris Benoit in this entire show, so we don't have to have the Benoit talk. Oh, good, good, yeah, because I, I was I was a little worried for a while. I think my issue with this is I get the finish for, you know, if you're going to bring Jimmy Snooker out in a cage in New York, he's going to do the Jimmy Snooker in a cage in New York thing. But if you're going to do that, a, I think Jarrett should have, there should have been more interaction between Jarrett and Benoit, where Benoit was the guy getting most of the offense and Jimmy Snooker just kind of picked up the scraps at the end. And B, if you're going to do that finish, he should have walked right through Terry Funk's first two guys. Yeah. Instead of Jeff Jarrett, who's going to be the guy sticking around, looking like a guy that can't beat these old men, even if there's, you know, ganging up on him, he still is in the prime of his career, and he should be able to take out the, these old-timers. That's the thing, because you're doing the same thing three times. So if it had been a thing where it culminated in this match, where he's beaten up two other legends, he's been making fun of the Buffalo Bills all night, and then all the chickens come home to roost because the NWO aren't there to back him up, and Ted Washington gets involved, and the other guys get involved, yeah. and Jarrett gets involved. And so all the comeuppance suddenly you know, sort of hit their thing, and then Jimmy Snuka can sort of be like, he has this big moment, and that's sort of like the big crescendo that we remember, even though it's pointless because you don't need to give Snuka that moment for, for any point at all. That that splash gave Jarrett a concussion, and he was unable to have those three matches on Sunday. Those matches never took place. Wow, I, I did not know that. That That is a... But, yeah, like, concussion aside, like... The scenario that you and I just kind of talked through, it's not the greatest show in the world, but it certainly is more captivating than what we got. You know, if the whole theme of the night is Jarrett's one step ahead of Terry Funk in each of the previous matches, and then he finally gets the comeuppance at the end, it, it makes more sense, and the audience is invested at least somewhat in what happens. Whereas with this, we've already seen you lose to George the Animal Steel, man. You have zero credibility now. There's just so many different ways to do this if you're actually trying to tell, like, because we did it three times, and it didn't escalate. It didn't get bigger. Nothing led to the next thing. It was three page one rewrites. It wasn't like Jarrett was even selling anything. From the previous match, if it had been that, like, we're all laughing at the shape that Jeff Jarrett's in, he wasn't selling anything. Right. There's, like, ten minutes between each match, and he's not selling a thing. And there's even the, the again, we're going to go back to this Ted Washington thing. There was a way to, to maybe build that up. Like, he cuts a promo before the first match. In the second match, he pushes Ted Washington, and then, like, maybe Ted Washington gets escorted out by, by security, and then Ted Washington runs down during the main event. Or... Terry Funk decides to make Ted Washington the special referee for the main event, so then he's in. There's some. There's just. There's a way to actually escalate it and build it. I'm getting shades of review and impact because we're pretty much just running around in a circle now, <laughs> making the same complaints. But it's the same angle done three times. I'm trying to think. Was um, in, in terms of Russo with the WWF, was he there during uh, Tyson when Tyson came in? Yeah. 
Yeah, he was there. Okay, because I was going to say, if he wasn't there during Tyson, then maybe he's got an excuse. But you were there during maybe one of the best executed sports angles in the history of pro wrestling. So you should know how to build up an athlete. And obviously, Ted Washington is not nearly on the same scale as a Mike Tyson. No, 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 no. He's much bigger. The, you're right. You're right. He might need two scales. Uh, Ted Washington, of, of course, has done, uh, you know, he had his own one-man Broadway show last year. <laughs> like, you can make, I, I'm trying to think, man, I hate to keep going back to TNA, but TNA, and it involved Jeff Jarrett. When he, remember when he was doing the uh, Double J MMA challenges? Yeah. He had, he made this kid, uh, was it Boo Boo Stewart? Mm-hmm. He made Boo Boo Stewart feel like, if not a big deal, at least a deal. And I'd never heard of Boo Boo Damn Stewart. But he at least made me think, okay, there's, there's something here with this kid. Whereas you've got a legitimate NFL athlete and you, you find a way to make, like, he, he felt so ineffective in that, in that, uh, Tito Santana match. It's like, why, why, why'd we even go through the trouble of having him, you know, physically climb over that barrier? Cause I'm sure it wasn't easy. Oh, no. Why'd we go Man, through all that a- trouble? Well, that's again, it goes to this thing of that Vince Russo doesn't understand the setup. The reason why you do the let's show the the hometown hero up on the Titan Tron, he can wave to the wave to the crowd. The reason why you do that is dramatically it establishes to the audience that he is there. And how many people in that audience do you think didn't even know that Ted Washington was there in the front row? Because you never showed a, a, a close up. How are people? who aren't in the ringside area supposed to know that Ted Washington is that you could have been the biggest fucking Ted Washington fan. But if you're on the second level, you're not going to know that Ted Washington's in the front row. And if you are the biggest Ted Washington fan, please write us and, and, and hit us up on Twitter and let us know uh, how you felt about this episode. Or you know what? To be honest, if you're just Ted Washington, reach out to us <laughs> and let us know what it was like doing this angle. So we then go backstage where the world champ Bret Hart and his challenger Kevin Nash are walking to the ring for their world title match. Meanwhile, Scott Steiner continues to fuck his brains out while never removing his sunglasses. We then go to the arena for our main event. Kevin Nash makes his way down with his Wolfpack music. We then cut to the back where Steiner's paid companions have disappeared and he is now tied up by Paul Orndorff and Larry Zbysko. Funk enters the room and forces a bar of soap down Steiner's mouth. Your mother should have done this to you a long time ago. Now open up your damn mouth. I said open up your mouth. Ah, Open up your mouth. There you go, Steiner. There you go. How's that taste? Back in the arena, Hart makes his entrance. This is a very generic brawling thing, as Hart is still suffering from the concussion that he suffered at Starcade in his match against Goldberg, and Nash is uh, well, Nash is Kevin Nash. And the announcers inform us that Jarrett has suffered a concussion following his cage match, which we just talked about. Nash hits a low blow and follows up with Snake Eyes. Hart then follows up with a low blow of his own. Both these two men are still working like heels. The crowd has really no one to cheer for here. In the background, we see two rows of empty seats as people have already begun leaving the building early. Nash hits a side suplex and rolls out of the ring to get a chair. Arn Anderson in a referee shirt then runs down to get revenge for his kidnapping. Remember that? Arn Anderson was kidnapped last week. Well, the enforcer hits Nash from behind with a steel pipe. Hart stays in the ring and yells at Arn for doing so. For the first time tonight... Bret Hart's pay-per-view opponent, Sid Vicious, is mentioned as he enters and delivers a big boot to Hart, who holds a steel chair in front of his face. 
Sid then chokeslams Hart as the cage begins to lower for no reason. Sid then powerbombs Hart, and Arn Anderson counts a three count, again for no reason. Terry Funk then comes out carrying a flaming branding iron. Funk then plunges the branding iron into the chest of Kevin Nash as we fade to black. Mutilations aside, there at the end, this was probably the best match on the show and that it was the only match on the show, really. Uh, Though to make matters worse... Not only would that triple threat theater uh, not happen, neither would Bret Hart and Sid Vicious take place that weekend as this match would end up being Bret Hart's final wrestling match. Wow. Because you can't really count the things he did later with the Vince McMahon and and stuff. You can't really count that. This ended up being Bret Hart's last match. Later uh, in the week, he would meet a doctor and get an MRI and was pretty much told uh, what the deal was, and he called WCW and told them. And Jeff Jarrett. Again, same thing happened to him. He had he got an MRI, had to tell WCW, I can't work the show this weekend. So then that weekend show is, t- is thrown into disarray, and we'll discuss what happened as a result of that. But first, Nate, let's talk about this main event segment. I, I feel like on a different show, Kevin Nash and Bret Hart gave us plenty to complain about. But on this show, <laughs> you know, this was, this was a five-star classic. Yeah, I, I mean... Considering its surroundings, this was one of the least offensive things on this edition of Nitro. And even a diminished Bret Hart is still going to be somewhat decent in the ring. Uh, And he did uh, provide some inspiration to a future superstar in John Cena with his ring attire. Actually, you know what? Bret would have worn the jorts in the Terry Funk match as well. So from that match on, we've only seen him in jorts. He is a George competitor now, Bret Hart is. <laughs> and and I think maybe what I like the best about his uh choice of, of outfits is that he instead of just, you know, having the shirt untucked like Cena would have it sometimes, he tucks the shirt into the George. Yep. I remember I was so disappointed because when he was coming back to do that match at WrestleMania in two thousand ten, I was really excited to see him in the old tights, and then he comes out in that fucking like black T shirt and those jorts, and it was just yep. He was clearly telling you guys, I'm not Bret Hart anymore. Okay, so I guess, real quick, let's uh, let's go on a tangent here, Brian Mann. Uh, because I- I'm assuming you've seen uh, um, most of Bret's run in WCW. Yeah. What would you say would be the highlight? Would it be that match with Benoit in, uh, was it Kansas City? That they dedicated to Owen? Or, or would it, would, is there something else that you would put as Bret's best moment in WCW? Because it's, it's not a lot to choose from. Ooh, that's... That is pretty high up there in terms of his matches. Uh, he always liked working with Booker T. He 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 recently did an interview where he said that was his best WCW opponent, but I don't remember anybody. Yeah, I don't remember any of those matches. Uh, maybe they had some random one on, on, on Nitro. Like, I think maybe, other than what you mentioned, maybe his most memorable moment, I'm not going to say it was his best, from WCW was when they had that Mad TV thing. You want to be a funny man, Sal? So no. write this into the script. You want to write things into the script? No, no, no. Write this. Hey, 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 hey. And then I think he and, uh, was it Deborah Killings ended up turning on Will Sasso yep. after the match? And Deborah Wilson out of nowhere backstabs. 
Oh, that was that was wonderful. But I think and, and like, I was, was a huge Mad TV fan. There was something about the the guest bookings that WCW was getting that it was really falling into my sweet spot. They felt like the biggest. To me, it's like WWF has Mike Tyson. What losers! I'm over here watching Mad TV on Nitro. This is a real hot shot angle. <laughs> to me, to me at that time, Will Sasso was a much bigger star than Mike Tyson. Oh, wow. That's where we're at at the end of this show. Now, what would happen this weekend? There's going to be a lot of shakeups, and we'll get more into it next week before the review. A lot of stuff happened backstage where it was decided that Bret Hart needed to lose the title, and they had to take it off him. He's pretty much done wrestling, and they didn't know what to do. It was Vince Russo's idea at this point that, looking up and down the roster, who makes the most sense as champion at this point? Tank Abbott. And Vince Russo (laughs) made the pitch that if this was legit, Tank Abbott would be the champion. So that's what he pitched. And in his defense, he said it would have only been for about a week or so. But that was his idea. And even that made Bill Bush realize this guy has no idea what the fuck he's doing. (laughs) Vince Russo was then removed as head booker, and then offered the chance to be part of a larger creative team, uh, which he rejected. So, a lot of shakeups begin next week when Kevin Sullivan will suddenly be our head booker of WCW. So, we're only two episodes in here, Nate, and there's already a lot of shakeups. Now, with everything that I said, all the shakeups that we know are coming with this next week's episode, does that make you more hopeful or afraid that, that as terrible as what we've got right now, it's the, it's the familiar waters of Vince Russo. At least there's something familiar with it. But that might be going away very soon. Actually, it makes me more hopeful because, you know, at least uh, with Kevin Sullivan, uh, and, and I haven't looked ahead to uh, the uh, next edition of Nitro, but at least with somebody like Kevin Sullivan, they have the fundamentals of what we're talking about. You know, the basic wrestling tropes that are, are tropes for a reason and, and not all tropes are bad. Uh so, yeah, somebody that actually understands the wrestling business in one Kevin Sullivan. So it, it's probably still going to be uh, a cluster, but maybe it'll be a cluster that makes a little bit more sense. Nate, you always find that silver lining. And speaking of a silver lining, Nate, we need to say what our silver lining was on this week's episode, where we're going to ch- pick out that one thing that we thought, honest to goodness, was decent. Nate, what was it for you? Uh, we talked about it earlier, but I think I might have to give it up for uh, Stevie Ray's promo. Stevie Ray's promo was not bad. Part of me kind of wants to say the Perry Saturn dive, even though it made absolutely no sense. Um, I'm also thinking of how many guys that were on the show last week that weren't even mentioned this week. You know, no Alex Luger this not week? Not mentioned Alex Luger. Bam Bam Bigelow put Chris Canyon through the stage last week, and it was not mentioned yeah. this week. Um, I will have to, and I'm tempted to say Stevie Ray's promo as well. Fuck it. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that Stevie Ray promo was probably <laughs> take I mean take out the the homophobic slurs that was probably the best part of that show was Stevie Ray's promo the 90 seconds that he got and, and to be fair he was an equal opportunity uh, offender because he called both men and women fruit true but you are the optimist here Nate and that is why each week we allow you to wrap up the show and tell people uh, those words of wisdom they need to hold themselves over until the next episode of Keep It 2000. Yes, uh, always good reconvening with you. Uh, you know, Mr. Science Theater 3000 had the satellite of love. I, I don't know what our satellite will be called just yet, brother man. Uh, but I'm enjoying the experiment so far. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening and shout out to Ted Washington, <laughs> wherever you are. Uh, but I think 
we need to go out with the wise words of Christina Aguilera, somebody that we talked about earlier on the show, from uh, her great song, So Emotional, because this, this episode made me feel so many emotions. It's either black or white. That's right. Are we making love or are we in a fight? Sometimes you make me feel so blue, but then it feels so good like I knew it would. You make me so emotional, I can't let you go. I'm so emotional that I'm sinking into an ocean, an ocean full of you, because I'm so emotional. Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Urbanovitz. For more shows, check out liveaudiowrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this, this.